Hello, friends. Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Hillcrest Covenant Church podcast. This week, we're starting a new series called Four. Oftentimes today, Christians are known for the things that they are against rather than the things they are for. So to begin this new year, we're looking at a few themes and focuses in Scripture that God clearly cares a lot about. How much time do we give to caring for the poor and the marginalized in society or giving a voice to the voiceless? Our God calls us to love the least of these. Remember, you can watch our live stream that happens Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or you can find us at hillcrestdecalb.com. Grace and peace. Well, as you're getting settled before we get rolling here again, I just wanted to say thank you as well uh, for, for all of the prayers <clears throat> for our staff over these last couple weeks. It's been, it's been, a, it's been a rough one. Um, but I particularly wanted to say thank you to all of you just for your flexibility and, and then particularly those of you who just stepped in and um, I just keep thinking <laughs> about, about texting and calling Haley two days before Christmas Eve. How many, how many of you would have loved to have been on the receiving end of that text message and phone call? Hey, what are you doing Christmas Eve? Did you want to step in and preach for me? Uh, and she just did such a phenomenal job. Just amazing. Not many people would have even said yes to that, let alone done such a fabulous job, uh, as did Shauna and the rest of our staff and, and Lois the next morning. And it just, it takes, it, so many people filled in and it just was amazing and I'm so grateful and um, also just really happy to be back here with you again. So it's a new year, it's a new day, we're ready to roll uh, and grateful to see what God's going to do this year. Now I don't know how to transition into this sermon. <laughs> I should have thought about that a little, a little better. Because my first sentence is, nothing unites like a common enemy. <laughs> Welcome to the new year. Nothing unites like a common enemy. How many of you have ever heard that before, right? Now maybe those of you who are a little less cynical than me, maybe you don't believe that to be true, but I really do. Nothing unites us like a common enemy. I actually believe that to have been true since the beginning of time. If anything, I think it's something that has always been true that is becoming less true the more polarized we are becoming. But that, I suppose, is a discussion for another day. We are wired toward negativity. We've talked about that here before, that our, our brains are more easily drawn toward negativity than positivity, that our brains both accept and retain negativity more easily than positivity. We know that scientists have proven that it takes, on average, three positive things to offset one negative thing. And so with that in mind, it makes logical sense that nothing unites us like a common enemy. And because of that, it's much easier to be known for what we are against than to be known for what we are for, right? We watch this play out especially during election seasons, right? I've never done research on this, but we all know that the vast majority of, of political commercials and ads consists of one candidate pointing out the flaws and faults of the other candidate, right? You turn on a political debate and candidate A spends his whole three minutes talking about candidate B's poor track record on whatever issue, and then candidate B spends his or her whole three minutes talking about the other person's poor track record on whatever other issue, 
And, and all the while, those of us who are voting are sitting there going, what, who are you? What do you, what do you stand for? What are you fighting for? What do you care about? What are you passionate about? How are you going to use your platform to make changes to things that matter? And, and what is it exactly that matters to you? Right? And, and not to be rude, but it's, it's both lazy and simple-minded to function like that. We're all guilty of it. I am very much guilty of that as well, but it doesn't change my mind that it's both lazy and simple to allow ourselves to give in to the fact that it's plain easier to be against something than it is to be for something. Think about it. To be against something, the only thing you need to do really is to find some kind of imperfection or flaw within that thing, be it a person or an idea or an institution. To be against something, all you have to do is find one singular flaw and then point that out, and then as long as it's not kind of categorically wrong, You've made this reasonable observation, and that's that. Making a a negative observation is that simple. You are now against that thing. Making a, a positive assertion or claim on something, however, is far more difficult. When you're taking a stand on something you are for, you not only have to make a positive observation about that thing or that person or idea or institution, but you also have to have evidence supporting it. You have to have evidence backing that up. You have to be able to make a claim or, or some kind of a compelling case for that thing in favor of that idea or for that person. So essentially, a, a simple flaw can stand on its own and be factually true all by itself, but, but something you're for has to have a supporting argument or, or be a part of a, a larger framework. Is this making sense? In other words, you, you, you can be lazy about what you're against, but it takes work to be for something. And we have created a culture where laziness of thought is allowed. And so a, a political candidate can run an entire election campaign and never tell us what he or she is for. And we will end up voting on him simply because of what he is against. Now I'm using politics as an example because it's an easy target. But it's not just politicians. We all do it. I bet most of the married couples in here, without giving it a second thought, could name all of the things that you do that your spouse cannot stand, and vice versa. I bet most of us are more keenly aware of the things that we do that bother other people, more than the things about us that compel us to other people. It's really easy to point out that you chew really loudly, or that you leave every light in the house on, right? It's much, much harder and more vulnerable and takes more thought to make sure that you know each day that it is your kind heart that compels me to you, right? It's true in politics, it's true in our homes, and so it's not surprising that it's true in the church as well. Now, I realize that Wikipedia is also a lazy source of information. However, it is a source that that helps determine common thought. There's an entry in Wikipedia that is titled Criticism of Christianity. And under that title, it says, the intellectual arguments against Christianity include the suppositions that it is a faith of violence, corruption, superstition, homophobia, transphobia, bigotry, and abuses of women's rights, among other things. 
Like many things and people and institutions in this current climate, Christianity and the church and Christians themselves are often far more known for what we are against than what we are for. Not only does that paint us in an entirely negative light, but much more importantly, if we are Christ's ambassadors, as scripture says, it means that the world knows less and less about who God is and what God is for. And that is a problem. And so I got to thinking, there's so much buildup and so much anticipation and so much preparation for Christmas. We ready ourselves for the birth of Jesus. We, we talk during Advent about how we're in, in this kind of in-between season, this already and not yet season, as we prepare for Jesus to come. And then the calendar flips and the day after Christmas, we go right into talking about kind of the, the new year and new beginnings and new resolutions and all of that good stuff. But what's it all for? The buildup and the anticipation, this, this savior whose birth we planned and waited for, why does it matter? Why does it matter? And what happened after God put on a human skin and moved into the neighborhood as one of us? So many people come to church on Christmas and Easter. Granted, those definitely are the highlights, but a lot happens in between then. Jesus came to earth for a reason. And for those of us who are trying our best to pursue a life that is consistent with his, we need to understand what Jesus was all about, who and what he was for, who and what he came here for. Who did he hang out with? What did he spend his time talking about? What was most important to him? What did he teach about? And so we are going to spend the next three weeks together talking about a few of the core things that are close to the heart of Jesus, that are closest to the heart of God, in an effort to understand what mattered to Jesus, and in an effort to understand that what mattered to Jesus has to matter to those of us who are trying to follow him. Since the beginning of humanity, we have had to deal with those who are in and those who are out. It was literally part of the fall of humanity, that we were initially created to walk in perfect harmony with God, relying on God and trusting in God for every single thing that we needed. But then when tempted to be more like God, when tempted to know what God knows, Adam and Eve chose something other than God's best for humanity. And part of the fallout of that was exclusion, Perfect relationship with each other and with God was broken. Emotionally and spiritually, there was a break between humanity and God, and and even physically. Adam and Eve were cast out from the garden. And ever since, humanity has had an in-crowd and those who are on the outside. Jealousy raged between Cain and Abel, and we all know how that ended. Just one generation into humanity And our insecurities had already become stronger than our love for each other. When I was growing up, as many of you know, uh, I'm the youngest of three kids and I'm the only girl. And we lived on a street in Downers Grove that was packed full of kids our age, most of whom were boys. When you're the youngest and the only girl, you can imagine that I got left out often. My oldest brother is six years older than me. And what 10-year-old boy wants his four-year-old sister hanging around, right? But as is often the case, it was actually the middle child that made everything worse. 
Who any, any middle children? Oh, poor Jans. <laughs> I'm just picking on the middle children. But Matt, Matt and my family is the middle child, and he and I are not even two years apart, right? And so growing up, he wanted to be wherever Jeff, our oldest brother, was. But he was too young to hang out with Jeff and his friends, and I know that it hurt his feelings. Well, guess who he took that out on? So not only did I have to deal with my own hurt about not being able to hang out with Jeff, whom I worshipped, but I also had to deal with Matt taking out his hurt that he couldn't hang out with Jeff on me. I've learned over the years, I think, that youngest children either often dive kind of fully into victim mentality or they become skilled instead. And I think I became skilled. It seems like the better of the two options, but... All it really meant for me is that I learned how to channel what was done to me into manipulating and controlling other people to make myself feel better. (laughs) I'm just being honest. I didn't want to feel left out, and so if I got control of the situation or the system or the friend group, then I got to decide who was in and who was out, which means that by the time I was in middle school, I was a bully. Now, bullies are really just wounded, insecure kids who learn how to control other people before they're controlled, right? Kids who learned how to hurt others so that they would no longer feel hurt. And who do bullies prey on? Really anybody weaker than they are, but especially the vulnerable, right? When, when you're wounded and insecure and you need to make yourself feel better, you're not going to put all the work in to try to control somebody who's fairly confident in themselves. You're going to look around and you're going to see who's standing on the outside, Who already feels badly about themselves? Who's already demonstrated signs of weakness? Who is most vulnerable? It's easy. And it's the laziest way to make yourself feel better. Just for a second. It starts on the playground and it continues on into every relationship and system that humanity is a part of. You would be hard-pressed to find a system in existence that doesn't thrive on some model where some person or group of people are, are up here and some person or group of people are down here. Systems are usually built on the backs of the vulnerable. It's as if that's the only way that we know how to do life. And because nothing unites us like a common enemy, and because we are often self-protective, and let's be honest, lazy thinkers, it's easiest for the common enemy to be the most vulnerable. It's as if we don't know how to function in this world without creating an other. Because if we didn't have an other, we would have no one to blame. And if we have no one to blame, we would have to take responsibility for our own actions and our own decisions and for our own failures and for our own flaws. And who wants to do that? If we don't have an other, we would have to recognize and give attention to our own hurts instead of allowing our hurts to become things to protect, usually by unhealthy means that often cause other people hurt. Are you with me? If I don't have anything that needs protecting, then I don't need to be on the defense. And if I don't need to live defensively, then I don't really need to have an enemy. And if I don't really need to have an enemy, then I don't really need to create another. And if I don't have hurts and vulnerabilities of my own that I feel need protecting constantly, then we can all live as equals. We can live in a way that we recognize that there is enough to go around. 
and that my success does not have to equal your failure or vice versa. We can acknowledge that there is enough room for everyone to succeed, that there are enough seats for everyone to sit at the table and that there is enough stuff for everyone to have what they need. But that's just the stuff of utopian novels, right? Our real lives can't imagine any system other than the only one we've ever known. And truth be told, most of us, if not all of us, probably know what it feels like to be left out to some degree. Whether your siblings wouldn't let you play with them, or you were the kid in school who was terrible at reading or sports, maybe you never made it to the cool table at high school, maybe your spouse and your child have a bond that you envy, Maybe you're never the one who's invited to your neighborhood or work parties or you feel like everybody else around you has a person or a group except for you. Maybe even now, here this morning, you feel like you don't fit into church because you don't know the rules or the customs or because of who you love or because of decisions that you've made or things that you've done or things that have been done to you that make you feel as if you are unworthy of being here. Feeling like an outsider is so painful And it's so damaging. We've probably all felt left out of something at some point. We've all tasted marginalization at least a little. And there are others, some of you here this morning, who know what it feels like to be on the fringes on a much grander scale. You know what it is to be a woman in a male-dominated field or world. You know what it is to be a disabled body in a in an able-bodied world. You know what it is to be a person of color in a whitewashed community or culture. You know what it is to be poor in a rich country or uneducated in an educated country or in some other way to be grossly and painfully excluded in the majority culture in a way that affects your identity or your sense of worth or your value or your understanding of your well-being. And whether you know what it is to feel this way or you are someone who has made others feel this way, or more so for most of us, probably some combination of the two, there's a story I want to tell you this morning. And it starts in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, and it comes to a crescendo in the Gospel of Luke. Back in the Old Testament, there was a man named Isaiah, and he was a prophet. He was sent by God to tell God's people about what God was going to do. And so in the book of Isaiah, there's these verses about what this Savior who's going to come, what what he's going to be like, and what this Savior is going to do for God's people. And so look what it says in Isaiah 61. Isaiah is talking about the Savior who is one day to come. And he says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, Because the Lord has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Now, for those of you who have been in church for a really long time, this is a text that we've heard so many times that our ears kind of gloss over it. But it's so important that we pause to recognize why this is such a big deal. Back in the Old Testament, God's people were all over the place about following God. They were back and forth, and sometimes they were faithful, and sometimes they weren't, and sometimes they had leaders who were faithful to God, and sometimes they didn't. Isaiah was pointing them to a brand new day, a day when they would have one king 
forever. One king who would come and who would show them how to live. One king who would save them, not in the way they thought they needed to be saved, but in a much more significant way. And when the prophet Isaiah was explaining to God's people why this savior was coming, his answer was this. A savior is coming to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom from the captives, and release from the darkness for the prisoners. Now, jump to the New Testament. We have celebrated the birth of Christ. There's, there's very little in Scripture that talks about Jesus' life for the first 33 years of his life. We know that he went to the temple when he was 12-ish. We know that he got baptized, but we know very little else. And then cut to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, and we see the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. First, he goes off into the wilderness where he's tempted, and then his public ministry begins. And the text says that Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been raised. Look what it says, Luke 4, chapter six, nope, Luke 4 verse 16. It says, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he, Jesus, went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he, Jesus, found the place where it was written. And Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So you've heard the first part of that already, haven't you? Jesus unraveled the scroll, which was the Old Testament, and he read directly from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. The first thing that Jesus teaches in the synagogue is what? Why he came. And why did he come? To proclaim good news to the poor. And to bind up the brokenhearted. And to proclaim freedom for the captives. And release from the darkness for the prisoners. And how do we know that that's really what Jesus meant? Because in verse 21, look what it says in verse 21. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then he rolled the scroll back up. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You want to know what I'm doing here? I'll tell you. I came for the least and the lost and the last. I came for the marginalized, the wandering, and those who are captive. My heart beats for those who are hurting, for those who have been left out for those who feel like they don't have a place anywhere. This is the heart of the Savior whose birth we just celebrated. The very people that we push aside or step on to get where we want to be, those are the people closest to the heart of Jesus. The people who knows what it feels like to be silenced, to be oppressed, to be shut down or shut out or shut up, Jesus came to give them a voice. And he calls us, to give them a voice as well. Look what it says in in Proverbs chapter 31, verses eight and nine. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, 
for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. That is God's call upon our lives. If you are here this morning and your desire is that your life reflect the heart of Christ, this is the heart of Christ. And we have a responsibility to speak up and to speak out and to speak on behalf of those our culture has stolen a voice from. Just to give you some perspective, and I know that I'm teetering on some very thin ice here, but I want to give you some perspective. Let's not get all amped up here, just some facts. What's the number one issue right now that the church is fighting about? Nobody wants to say it out loud. Human sexuality, right? Now listen carefully. We're not about to get into that discussion. Just calm down a second. I just want to give us some perspective on where we are putting our energy when it comes to the things that matter to God. All biblical scholars on all sides of the conversation around human sexuality will tell you that there are roughly six passages in Scripture that speak to that issue in a significant way. Now, I'm not saying that it's not important. I'm not saying it's not something we don't need to discuss. I'm not saying it's not a significant thing. What I am saying is that there are just over 31,000 verses in the Bible, and roughly six of them speak to this topic. It's a topic that the church does not agree on. It's a topic that is harming human life and ripping churches apart worldwide. And we have six verses to try to make our case on any which side. Do you know how many verses there are that talk about God's heart for the marginalized? Over 3,000. There are over 3,000 verses in scripture that speak to God's heart for the poor, the widow, the orphan, that speak to God's heart for justice, that speak to God's heart for the impoverished. Over 3,000. 3,000 verses calling us to understand who God is fighting for and what God is calling us to fight for. Other than God himself, the poor and the marginalized are talked about more than anything else in all of scripture. There is no confusion around this. There are no biblical scholars having debates about this. Churches are not dividing over this. There is no confusion of interpretation around this. Bible readers across the centuries are very clear that there is no mistaking God's heart for the poor and the marginalized. Yet how well do we do holding each other responsible for this? How much of our daily lives are focused on this? How much do our hearts beat for the poor and the marginalized? How much energy do we put forth in a day towards speaking up for the voiceless? And if it's this clear that this is what God is for, why is this not what Christians are known for? Now, don't get me wrong. As a church, this particular community has a huge heart for God's people. And we give incredibly substantial amounts of our budget to missions. It's astounding what this little church does. I'm so blown away by this church. But when I was thinking about this, these things and these people that God is so blatantly for, it was my personal daily life that I couldn't help but think about. If this is so, so clearly what God is for, does my daily life reflect that? 
And what would it even look like for that to be the case? Thankfully, I don't typically consider myself to be a bully anymore, so that's a good start. But are there other ways in which I participate in the marginalization of others? Do I have others in my own life? People that I shove to the outside? Are there people that I consider less than myself? Are there people who don't fit into my life because they're different than me? And or do I use whatever platform I've been given to speak on behalf of those who are voiceless? Do I handle my money in such a way that I can be generous to the poor? Do I pay attention? I mean, I mean really look for people in my daily life who feel like they are outsiders so that I can play a part in helping them to feel seen or heard or valued? Do I take time to learn about the experiences of those who are marginalized in our culture? When I plan an event, do I consider whether or not it's accessible to a disabled body? Am I willing to take the time and the energy and the effort that is required of me to try to learn what it might be like to be a black or a brown person in a culture that's been shaped by white people? Am I even willing first to admit that there's a systemic discrepancy there? Am I patient with people who don't speak my language? Am I willing to put my faith above my politics in order to help somebody in need? Am I willing to risk anything or risk everything to ensure that the voiceless have a voice and that the marginalized find a seat at the table? These are not just big, hypothetical, out-there kinds of questions or situations. The reality is that we have an opportunity to engage in God's heart for the marginalized every single day. We just have to choose to. We have to be willing to pay attention and we have to be willing to risk. We have to be willing to recognize our own privilege. And then we also have to be willing to use our privilege to somebody else's advantage. And I know that's threatening to a lot of us. But really, friends, it's only threatening if you believe that God is a God of scarcity and not a God of abundance. If you truly believe that God has what you need, then you need not worry about what somebody else has if they have more than you. But you have a biblical mandate to care about those who have less than you. There's no other way to spin this. Author Amy Baker said that understanding vulnerable humanity, humanity on the margins of society, is the only way to understand all of our true humanity. And I absolutely believe that to be true. Pastor Bill mentioned this morning that we look away from grieving people because we don't want to tap into our own pain. We also look away from disabled people because we don't want to imagine ourselves in that position. And we look away from poor people because it's easier to ignore their humanity than to see ours within them. And we turn away from marginalized people because power makes us feel safer and vulnerability terrifies us. We turn away from the things that we don't want to face because if we look them in the face, we are guaranteed to see our commonality and our shared humanity and that scares us to death. But the system that we live in is not the system that we were created for. Jesus, whose birth we just celebrated, came to save us from the brokenness of this world. But it wasn't just about this ultimate eternal salvation. 
He also came to teach us how to live. And he came to show us how to live. And the heart of Jesus is for the marginalized. I used to be a bully, and so vulnerability is clearly not my jam. So talking about the marginalized is uncomfortable for me. Because control and power make me feel safe. And if I am honest, my own safety is my number one on my list. And talking about and caring for those on the margins is risky business. And I am not a risk-taking kind of person. But if the church is going to hold itself and those within it accountable for anything, it has to be the things that God talked about the most. It has to be the things that Jesus said he came here for. There's no other way. The heart of Jesus is with and for the vulnerable and the marginalized. And so the reality is that we're not going to go out there today and change the entire system. But I guarantee you that you can play a specific tangible part in perpetuating the heart of God in your specific world today and every day. Look around. Just look around. Who is on the fringes of your world? Who in your day is most alienated and most oppressed and most disadvantaged? Where in your day and in your life do you hold privilege and what are you doing with that privilege, however great or small it is? Do you have any kind of a platform anywhere and are you using it to give voice to those who are culture silences? Are you willing to be vulnerable enough to see to really see the humanity behind the person or the people that you secretly or maybe even unconsciously deem less than yourself? Are there people that you can open your eyes and your heart a little wider to today? It's easier for us to live in a life where some people are on the inside and others aren't. It's what our country and our culture do, and so it's what we know. And so if you are uninterested in pursuing God's heart for this world, then you can go right on living within that same system that our culture continues to perpetuate. But if you're here this morning and you have said yes to Jesus, or if there's any part of your heart that is trying to be like Christ in this world, we are responsible for realizing that every human being that we see is made in the image of God is loved by God, and is someone that God desires to draw nearer to himself. Our government, our country, our political party, none of these get to define who matters, because it's not their heart that we seek. God has clearly communicated with us that the lost and the least and the last are his priority. Are they yours? Let's pray. God, I don't like this sermon, and I don't want to preach it. Because it's hard, and it's uncomfortable, and I don't like being vulnerable, and I like the little world that I live in, and I like the privilege that I have. But God, all the work that we just went, went through and went to to celebrate your birth means nothing if we're not going to live the way that you have called us to live. 
You have shown us, O oh Lord, what you require of us. You have shown us, Lord, to love justice, to seek mercy, to walk humbly. You have told us as clear as day why it is that you came. You have shown us, Lord, that your heart is for those on the fringes of society, those that we have cast aside, those that we have said mean nothing, mean everything to you. Sometimes, God, we know what that feels like to be in that spot, and sometimes we know what it feels like to make others feel that way. Most of the time, Lord, though, we know what it is just to ignore it all the same. And so, God, I just pray that you would soften our hearts. Neither we nor our systems are going to change in an instant. But I believe, Lord, that you are a God of abundance and not a God of scarcity, which means that there's room at your table for everybody. We are not in competition with each other. Not one of us is more important or less important. Not one of us is more valued or less valued. All made in your image, all saved by your grace. We give you thanks, Lord. Help us to walk as you walk. Help us to love as you love. May we live this day and each day with our eyes open to the people you have created and called us to serve. In your holy name we pray. Amen.